Uh, it is not going to be quick and it is not going to be easy for us to dig ourselves out of the hole that we are in. But America is a strong and resilient country, and I know we will succeed. Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm David Kastenbaum. And I am glad to be here in Washington, D.C. for a change with you, David. I'm down here, as you know, on NPR Business. Uh, today we are finally going to play the story that we've been talking about, hinting about. Um, it's our big collaboration with our good friends at the New York Times, Charles Duhigg and, and, and the team over there. This is the story we've been working on with them that you and me and Alex have been working on for weeks. Right. And as I was trying to think about how to kind of introduce this, I was reminded of this uh, kid's book called A Series of Unfortunate Events, and it's about the By kind Lemony of, Snicket. By Lemony Snicket, about the uh, misadventures of three orphans in which basically nothing really good ever happens to them. And this is sort of uh, the equivalent story from the global financial world. It's a tale of uh, intertwined misery, and it, we go all over the world with it. And uh, uh, we start with, you went to Wisconsin, um, my story takes us to Ireland and Germany, although I didn't actually go to Ireland or Germany. But my story takes us there. <laughs> and uh, Alex went to Philadelphia. You went to Wisconsin. So we did travel a bit for this story. And it makes a little pit stop in the Cayman Islands, which I didn't go to either. Um, but it starts with me uh, on a high school football field in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Mark Hugic is the offensive coach for the Tremper Trojans. In addition to calling the plays, he is partly responsible for the bleachers, the classrooms, the teachers, and funding for that brick high school nearby, because he's on the school board. And these days, when he's out in, say, the grocery store, people ask not about the football team, but about that other thing, the investment the school board made, which he explains like this. Regarding our transaction... um, uh, unfortunately, what we thought we bought and what we bought are two separate things. And consequently, uh, we have an asset that is valued at uh, a great deal less than it was originally. The school board invested $37.5 million. At last check, they had lost over 90% of that. That's not the worst part. That $37.5 million they invested, all of it borrowed money. In fact, four nearby school districts went along, investing a grand total of $200 million, most of it borrowed. How did the schools get wrapped up in this? This is the sort of situation where you wish the school boards had taped their meetings. And actually, they did. Um, on page three, it starts explaining what it is. This is a pitch by a broker to one of the school boards in 2006. And listening back, it seems like the most boring thing in the world. Even though if this were a horror movie, it's where the scary music would start creeping in. The school boards were trying to build up a little pool of money to help pay for health care for teachers and employees when they retire. The deal, as the school boards now say they understood things, was that the districts would borrow money at a low interest rate, then reinvest that borrowed money in very safe corporate bonds through a fancy financial instrument. This product is a... I call it a black box. They were basically acting like a bank, 
You borrow money at one rate, lend it out at a slightly higher rate, the difference you keep. In this case, they were only going to make 1%, which is why the schools borrowed all that money to magnify their returns. For the $200 million invested, they could expect something like a steady $2 million a year in income. Mark Hugic, the football coach, used to work at an investment bank in New York. He says the guy selling the thing either didn't know what he was talking about or just misled them. For me personally, I'd say it's a very embarrassing moment. You know, I take, you know, I, I do this because I want to help my community. And, uh, you know, on my watch, we did something that turns out to be very foolish. It turns out the school districts had bought one of the most complex financial instruments ever constructed, something called a synthetic collateralized debt obligation. The first guy to understand the depth of what that meant works at a high school about 40 miles north. Hello, my name is Sean Eady. I'm the director of business services for the school district Whitefish Bay. Eady used to be a wrestler, and he has the look of someone who just got pinned. A synthetic collateralized debt obligation is not actually so hard to describe, but the paperwork for it is intense. The original document. Whoa, that's a huge book. Yes, this is the closing document. It's over three inches thick. We measured it. Did this thing actually come in the mail? Yes, it did. Or they, they dropped it off by courier. And then it just went on the shelf over there? Actually, it's too big to fit in the shelf, so it was, it's been on my floor since. <laughs> like many things in the financial crisis, this document is global. The CDO was constructed by the Royal Bank of Canada. It was registered in the Cayman Islands. Parts of the investment were managed by bankers in London. All that money the districts borrowed? Mostly from a foreign bank. The black box worked for a while, spitting out money. But then Edie started getting some strange phone calls and faxes. The value of their investment was not steady, like bonds would be. It was jumping around, and no one could tell him why. We Googled stuff. We uh, actually went on Standard and Poor's website, read a lot, uh, more than you'd ever want to know about these complex transactions. Eventually, they got a lawyer and hired a firm to go over that huge document. The moment of truth came, he said, across the hall in the superintendent's office, where a financial expert explained that they did not own any corporate bonds. Instead, the school boards had been in the insurance business, They had been insuring part of a pool of over 100 bonds. If the bonds were doing okay, no problem. But if just eight companies in that pool defaulted, the school would lose all of its money. My heart just sunk. I mean, it's one of those those times where you just uh, absolutely got sick. You know, just sick to my stomach listening. The book Edie keeps on his floor has a list of the companies in the pool. They're all big names. Ambac, um... Anheuser-Busch, AT&T. Which explains why the CDO they bought had been rated AA- by S&P. Historically, it was really rare for any of these companies to default on their bonds. If you were selling insurance on their bonds, it was just not that big of a risk. It's chilling to look through that book today, though. There are companies in there that now conjure up completely different images than they must have when these pages were printed out. Lehman Brothers, AIG... Fannie Mae, and Freddie Mac. So far, not enough companies in the pool have defaulted for the schools to actually lose all their money. But the CDO is now worth very little because the market thinks it's likely more of the companies could run into trouble. So Edie is in the awful spot of hoping, hoping, hoping that just does not happen, that they do not go over the cliff. It's the difference between being okay and losing everything. 
Edie has photos of his kids on the wall, six boys, all wrestlers. My two youngest um, read uh, an article in the paper that was calling, you know, uh, you know, these empty-headed people who invested in this should be fired and that type of thing. And, you know, that's, it, it breaks my heart. I sort of kind of get choked up. But... Edie's eyes get damp when he says this. And just when I'm about to leave, his secretary hands him an envelope, which he opens and stares at. This is a bankruptcy credit event uh, notice on Washington Mutual. So what does that mean? It means that we're one, one default closer to falling off that cliff. The school districts have filed a lawsuit against the broker and the Canadian bank that set up the deal. The broker and the bank say the school board had been informed of the risks. And that, like a lot of investments that seem safe, this one has unfortunately lost a lot of money. So I just left Sean Eady's office at the high school here in Whitefish Bay, Wisconsin. Just getting in the car. And uh, on Sean Eady's desk, he'd written a list of things to do. And number one on that list was call DEPFA. Now, DEPFA is the bank that lent these school districts $165 million for this investment. It's not a local bank. It's not even a U.S. bank. It's an Irish bank. And that is the next chapter in our story. I'm Adam Davidson, and I'll pick up here with the story of that Irish bank that has, to put it mildly, its own problems. If those school boards in Wisconsin got in trouble by acting more like a bank or a hedge fund, DEPFA made a troubling transformation of its own from being a small bank making local loans to a major global enterprise intertwined with the finances of cities and states from Detroit to Dubai. Like David said, DEPFA's headquarters are indeed in Dublin, Ireland. But if you decided for some reason to fly there to visit the bank, you wouldn't have much sense that you're in that ancient city. Colin McCarthy teaches finance at University College Dublin. It's all new. There was nothing down in that area of the city except uh, old cattle yards where they used to export live cattle to Liverpool and stuff like that. Oh, really? Abandoned. <laughs> Abandoned for 20 years. So so virtually all the buildings down there are new. And sort of um, steel and glass financial center yeah, kind of. sure. Those glass and steel towers were built when Ireland decided, sort of all of a sudden, to become a global banking center. This was back in the 1980s. That meant convincing banks in other places to move to Ireland. So they offered really low corporate tax and lighter regulation and... It worked. For the first time in centuries, people and businesses were moving to Ireland, not away from Ireland. A big inflow of people from uh, Central and Eastern Europe and from many other parts of the world. Uh, You know, the economy was booming uh, and there were jobs for everybody. DEPFA was one of those immigrants. It's only been Irish for six years. Before that, DEPFA was a German bank a really, really German bank. It was owned by the German government. Its core business was German government bonds. You really can't get less global than that. And then, in the early 1990s, along came a guy named Gerhard Bruckermann, the bank's new CEO. 
one country wasn't big enough for him. He wanted the world. So he moved the headquarters to Dublin, opened offices in Turkey, India, Brazil, all over Europe and Asia. And everywhere he went, huge success. And then he made the move that brought Depfa in contact with the school boards in Wisconsin. He opened in New York with a ridiculously audacious goal to dominate American municipal finance. Herb Jacobs ran the U.S. operation. We went from, from not being a player to being one of the top five. I can see the pride in your face. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's very, yeah. It's, uh, it, it, uh, this was um, a wonderful moment. As recently as February of this year, when Jacobs retired, Depfa was doing amazingly well. I don't think any of us envisioned that this would become a wholesale slaughter that it eventually did become. Depfa's wholesale slaughter was a lot like other wholesale slaughters we've been hearing about lately, like Bear Stearns or AIG. Because of all the chaos in the financial markets, Depfa suddenly couldn't borrow money fast enough to pay its debts, and its debts kept getting bigger. By September of this year, it was about to collapse, right when the government of Ireland promised to bail out any troubled Irish banks. But Depfa learned that even if you're a bank, you can get harsh treatment as an immigrant. The government told them they're too big to save. Colin McCarthy. They may have had a balance sheet bigger than the rest of the Irish banks put together. Uh, the Irish taxpayers couldn't realistically be asked to guarantee the balance sheets of, you know, great big uh, international banks that happen to be located here. In the end, Depfa was saved, sort of, in a bailout by the German government. But it's a very different and much weaker bank than it was before. And the whole saga has had unintended consequences on cities and towns all across America. So now we're going to continue our global tour of financially interconnected misery. You know, we started at that school district in Wisconsin that borrowed the money from the Irish bank, and then we learned about how the Irish bank got in trouble by growing too big. Now Alex Bloomberg is going to explain how those troubles at that bank and other banks like it are wreaking havoc on the finances of towns and counties and states and cities all across America. Let's face it, most of us don't have any idea what the global financial system has to do with our daily lives. But the global financial system is all around us. Like here, in Philadelphia. Uh, We're looking at the future expansion of the Pennsylvania Convention Center, which is right in the, the heart of downtown center city, Philadelphia. That's Rebecca Reinhardt, the treasurer of the city of Philadelphia. She brought me here to illustrate one of the key concepts you have to understand. If you want to understand what the global financial system and banks like DEPFA have to do with you and me in cities like Philadelphia, that concept, bonds. IOUs that a city like Philadelphia issues, saying, if you loan us a couple hundred million dollars to expand our convention center now, then we'll pay you back that money with interest over the next 20 or 30 years. Cities issue bonds all the time. In fact, they wouldn't exist without them. The streets are uh, financed with bonds, all the sewers... Um, water system, drinking water, schools, all the infrastructure that you see around you. Uh, So this really does touch upon the daily fabric of the city. 
the problem cities are now facing has to do with a relatively new way of issuing bonds that became popular during the 1990s, something called variable rate bonds. As opposed to fixed rate bonds, where the interest rate stays the same, on a variable rate bond, it fluctuates. And for complicated reasons that I won't get into here, the way you make a variable bond work is by having this special bank called a liquidity bank attached to it. This liquidity bank is essentially a safety net. If you own a variable rate bond and you want to sell and you can't find a buyer for it, the liquidity bank promises to step in, to be the buyer of last resort. Every variable rate bond issue has to have a liquidity bank attached to it. And who is one of the biggest liquidity banks out there? I'll give you one guess. We do have some water bonds that have DEPFA as a liquidity bank, and you know they, they are almost all in the liquidity bank because no one wants to buy them. Let's listen to the second half of that sentence again. Here. They are almost all in the liquidity bank because no one wants to buy them. That right there, that's bond speak for something has gone very, very wrong. And what's gone wrong has to do with something called bond insurance. There are a handful of insurance companies that insured municipal bonds with names like FSA, FIDGIC, and AMBAC. They were specialty companies with very high AAA credit ratings, which they would use to bless municipal bond issues. That blessing meant that a city could sell its bonds at much lower interest rates, saving it money. But late last year, these bond insurers started to get downgraded, started losing their AAA ratings. Kathy Klepper works for Public Financial Management, a company that advises towns and cities about bond issues. She's a 20-year veteran of the industry, and these downgrades, she says, were a big deal. When we started hearing that the bond insurers were getting downgraded, it seemed almost, it was unbelievable. Nobody ever considered that a AAA bond insurer would actually get downgraded or that all of them would be getting downgraded. No one considered it because, historically, insuring municipal bonds was not a risky business. Municipalities almost never default on their bonds. The library never misses a payment. The school district never misses a payment. The city of New Orleans, after Katrina, never missed a payment. So how did these bond insurers, who collect premiums and never pay claims, manage to get themselves downgraded? Earlier this decade, they started insuring something besides municipal bonds, subprime mortgage-backed securities. Enough said. The bond insurer downgrades had consequences for Philadelphia Treasurer Rebecca Reinhardt. Her office issued $290 million of variable rate bonds last year, and they used one of the main AAA bond insurers out there, a company called Fidget. Everything was going fine until Fidget got downgraded. And investors suddenly was, wait, I own this bond, and it has this Fidget name on it. I don't want to hold this anymore. So you've paid, you've paid Fidget a couple of million dollars specifically so that your bond seems safer. And then all of a sudden, because they're attached to your bond, it's freaking everybody out. Oh, that's right. That's right. That insurer that was supposed to protect um, and, pr- and provide some, some extra... Uh, bondholder security, really, ended up, they become the burden on the deal rather than assisting us on the deal. Now, the burden specifically was this. When no one wants the bond, that's when the liquidity bank, the buyer of last resort, has to step in. Banks like DEPFA. But these banks were reluctant saviors. They didn't want these bonds either. It's a big hassle to buy them. And when they do it, lots of fine print kicks in. The interest rates go much higher. The terms, in some cases, shrink. So a town that thought it had 30 years to pay its debt, when the bond goes back to the bank, it now has 10 years or 7 years. Its payments skyrocket. One of Kathy Klepper's municipal clients, a school district, is in exactly this situation. 
they may have budgeted, you know, a million dollars a year for this bond issue. Now they've all of a sudden have to pay two or three million dollars in principal that they hadn't budgeted, and that's significant for a lot of school districts. Right. So um, their payment has basically tripled. Yeah. So now they've got to pay more and more in interest and more in principal. And so all across the country, towns and cities are stuck. They have their bonds at the bank with rapidly increasing rates and payment schedules. There's no really bond insurers out there um, that are stepping to the plate to step in the shoes of, of the FSAs and the FIDGICs and the AMBAC. So there's no moves left, you know, for a lot of these municipalities. Reinhardt and Klepper both say that the municipalities will figure out some way to keep making their payments. They always do. But it'll cost them, and by extension, us, and slightly higher taxes or water rates or hospital bills. The kicker of this whole thing is the municipalities are only doing what they've always been doing, issuing bonds, paying them back with interest. It's the institutions that were supposed to guarantee them, the insurance companies and the banks, that have gotten in trouble. It's as if you bought auto insurance, and then your insurance representative came over to your house, got liquored up, totaled your car, handed you back the keys, and said, that'll make your rates go up. Everything's upside down. And all over the country, municipalities are learning the same lessons that the school districts in Wisconsin learned, and that Depth of Bank learned. Complexity can make things more efficient. Going global can make you money or save you money. But it also exposes you to risks you might not have foreseen. They didn't understand that trade-off before. They do now. Well, that's it. That's our big project that we've been working on for weeks. Please let us know what you think, good and bad, planetmoney at npr.org. And also please go to the New York Times website and check out Charles Duhigg's great story, or we'll link to that on our blog. npr.org slash money. I'm Adam Davidson. I'm David Kestenbaum. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>